She was the queen of the ring who wrestled men in the circus, women in arenas coast to coast, and made women's wrestling hotter than their male counterparts in the 40s. Today, we're talking about Mildred Burke. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Holy crap, we are back again. It's another episode of Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Who am I? My name is Nick Gossard. I am a pro wrestling promoter here in Denver, Colorado. But more importantly for the moment, I'm a lover of history. I'm a lover of pro wrestling history. And that's what we're going to do here. And I am here with the Joker to my penguin. It's Chongo Bronson. Hello, old chap. It's time for another scheme on the Adam West Batman and hopefully a few pows and wows and bops and bangs along the way. But we have a third, third, uh, line! We got a guest host going with the Batman theme. Someone to teach us the bat to see. Oh my God, it's hot. Heidi Howitzer, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm fantastic. I'd be doing a lot better if uh, the promoter that has the misfortune of booking me here regularly didn't almost butcher my name. But, uh... <laughs> That's nice, howdy. Howdy, howdy. Good old howdy howitzer. Heidi, you old so-and-so, it is capital to see you again. <laughs> you look proper fit. Oh, thank you. Yes, the P9128, eh? Yeah, yes, it's, it's yes. all those five-pound weights. Five-pound weights. Yeah. Yes, that's what, the steak or what? The potatoes. <laughs> it's the potatoes. Yeah, it's both, girl. <laughs> and I'm not just excited to have a guest. I'm not just excited to be here. I'm excited about the topic we are going to be discussing. We're going to start jumping around a little bit in the timeline. We laid a good foundation and I actually have, we have some good episodes in the can, but I liked this topic so much that we're going to, we're going to jump the line. We're going to do a little bit of cutsies to put this one in now because it's not just fascinating. I think it's important. We're going to be talking about Mildred Burke today. Yeah, man. I mean, it's not chronological. It's, it's, Chandler's not worried about being logical. It's about what's what do I want to talk about right now? We have so many topics in the history of pro wrestling, and this needs to be at the front of the list, man. We've talked about luchas, we've talked about carnies, we've talked about shooters. Let's talk about the, the pioneers, the ladies of professional wrestling. And speaking of, Heidi. Um, Hi. I'm thrilled. It's time for you to uh, inject some estrogen into this podcast, not only in your uh, speakers, but in the topics themselves. And uh, what a better place to start than with Mildred Burke. And one thing I do want to get out of the way, a bit of a disclaimer, a bit of a warning. During the course of this episode, we will be discussing domestic abuse and attempted sexual assault. If that's a deal breaker for you and you have to turn it off, I fully understand. Thanks for checking in anyway. I'm fully respectful of that. Join us in a couple of weeks when we're talking about something else. But unfortunately, that is the reality of what being a woman not just in a man's business, but just being a woman in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, today, unfortunately is being a woman in wrestling is a tough bit of business. A lot of unfortunate uh, things in her personal life. It is what it is. And that's just why we wanted to be open up front. And if you're ready to go, then we are ready to go. Because what we do here is we talk about pro wrestling history. And a lot of that is an oral tradition. So if you hear stories today and you think, I heard that story, but I heard it a different way. You know what? You probably did. Stories change as they're told. As soon as a story starts being told in front of an audience, it becomes fiction because it becomes subjective it becomes in the moment, but we're trying to stay as close to the facts as we can. 
Our source material today is The Queen of the Ring by Jeff Lean, who had access to Burke's unpublished autobiography. And I also read The Sisterhood of the Squared Circle by Pat Laprade, or Laprade, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, should you ever hear this, and Dan Murphy. Yeah, I feel free to jump in first before me anytime you want. I would actually defer to you, prefer to defer to you if you feel the itch. And if not, I'll take it. We'll, we'll do like a little like. All right. Excellent. No, I'm very curious to uh, hear everything that uh, Nick has found here on Mildred Burke. I was uh, coming into this somewhat blind. You know, I know a little about her and her history and I've watched some footage, but most of this is going to be news to me and I'm pretty excited about and, it. And it's going to be news to a lot of people because not many people outside of the hardcore fans know who Mildred Burke is. And there's an important reason for that. She never worked for the McMahons. She never was a part of the NWA. Therefore, you kind of get erased from history because there's not a narrative that can be profited from. When you hear about women's wrestling from the point of view of WWE, you tend to start with the fabulous Moolah, who we cannot discount her importance or her uh, problems. <laughs> notoriety. Notoriety. We'll go with notoriety. But because she was an integral part of the WWF, WWE, you would assume if you just watched their television, their documentaries, their whatever, that pro wrestling started with her, but it did not. It started much earlier. And Mildred Burke was one of the biggest stars and one of the most important wrestlers in our sports history, both men and women. Mildred Burke was born Mildred Bliss on August 5th, 1915 in Coffeyville, Kansas. It is best known for the day in 1892 when the Dalton gang rode in with a plan to rob two banks in the same town on the same day and ended up with most of them dead along with four townsfolks. The Midwest was a grim place at the time, not during the Dalton gang, but that it's, was probably It's still kind of a grim place. It's still a grim place. <laughs> and only got worse during the Depression. Not much work to be had, and the work that was available was never easy. It was a place of factories, oil refineries, and rail stations. Millie was the sixth child of Bruce Edward and Bertha Bliss. Her childhood revolved around the economic realities of the time, with her family moving several times, sometimes in poverty, sometimes in the lap of luxury when her father made good money off of his inventions. While living in Kansas City, her family fractured as her father walked out of their life, never to be seen again. She was 11 years old at the time, and that's a tough hand to be dealt. Yeah, is this like uh, Gone with the Wind or uh, Little House on the Prairie? I mean, this is really, really uh, hard beginnings, man, and it's a true champion's tale from the gutter and the, you know, you're talking pre, pre, electricity pre you I know mean, indoor plumbing the thought of being a single mother is terrifying enough like in now yeah. much less during the great depression in kansas uh you know that's that's pretty much the the heart of it right there i yeah that's terrifying but millie made the best of it she was small but physically destined to be an athlete with naturally strong legs she excelled at track and field and soccer. She was tough and determined to compete on an equal playing field with the boys, refusing to give up her spot in soccer games, no matter how many kicks to the shin she would absorb. This determination would set the pace for her wrestling career years later. Growing up in a religious household, most of her siblings ended up as ministers or church employees, and she had no education on sex and thought her first menstruation was a sports injury that was killing her. <laughs> 
I shouldn't laugh. I feel like that probably is the thought that a lot of young girls have when they haven't had that discussion yet. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a tough one at that time. I can't even imagine what that would be like, especially if you've had no sort of, like, indication. No one gave you the idea oh that that was coming. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you have a, like a puritanical Christian family, there's no internet. You don't get to pick up a copy of Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, at the local library. It's me, library. Mildred. It's me, Mildred. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that is a rough surprise, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh. When she was 14, the 1929 stock market crash made their already tough life even worse. The Great Depression arrived and pushed the Bliss family to the edge of desperation. She dropped out of school, her and her mother moved into a crowded boarding home, and she took on part-time work as a stenographer. During the time, she learned the hard way what it was like to be a woman in the workforce. As a teenager, she had to fight off several attempted sexual assaults. I'm not going to go into details. You can find those in the books. Moving on. At 15, she ended up working at a restaurant on the Zunite Reservation in New Mexico. While fascinated with the culture she was exposed to, this was not a good place for a teenage girl. She married a man named Joseph Schaefer when she was 17. Little is known about her first husband, and she said, I would have married anyone to get off that reservation. Well, first of all, shout out to her mom for being a single mother with six kids and losing it all in the stock market crash of 29. She was in it to win it, man. And I, I, I understand where she got that hustler spirit and the ability to see a woman take charge because obviously her mother set the standard for, for the toughness and, and the ability to break through that she would show and become the greatest woman wrestler and athlete of her era. There's a joke about Robin Hood fucking people all the way back then, too, but... I was about to say, I assume this was all due to Redditors buying Game Stocks, or... I assume game, game Stocks? Game Stocks! <laughs> well, I botched that joke, but I'm no good at jokes. I'm no good at history outside of pro wrestling history. The newlywed couple moved back to Kansas City, where they, along with her mother, opened a diner. The Depression was brutal, and Millie worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week to barely make ends meet. People had no work, no money, and the city was coated from the frequent dust storms that tore across the Midwest. If you've ever watched Carnival, uh, the old HBO show, you'll kind of get a feel for this because this was not just an economic disaster time. It was an ecological disaster time where entire cities would be swallowed up by dust storms. Yeah, it's dust like a three day straight dust storm, which yeah. is, yeah, just insane. In her unpublished autobiography, she credits her first husband for taking her to her first wrestling matches at the Midway Arena in Kansas City. She was immediately hooked. Watching these bouts fascinated me, absorbed and excited me in a way that I had never known before. Something deep in my core had been awakened. Is that how you felt seeing wrestling for the first time? It's exactly how I would have described it. All those... It's a whole new world. Yeah, it's, it's all the men in the tiny trunks and the oiled bodies, yeah. Yeah, definitely awakened something. Well, and that's the thing she actually did talk about in some detail is there is that sexual component to wrestling, even women watching men wrestle or men watching men wrestle, you know, whatever you're into. And for her, it wasn't about that component. Instead of being like, oh, look at those abs, she was thinking, I should be in there kicking ass too. Yeah, this is something for everybody, man, because whether you're looking at the booty in the shorts or you're looking at the way that that joint is getting reversed, you know. Well, and back then it was still, it was still real. I oh, mean, yeah. early, and, and well, so much of it was 
Well, yeah, we'll get into that. I mean, and we even, got even, into that last even the work was a lot more authentic. Than oh yeah, they, they 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 got gritty back in the day. They yeah. didn't have the they didn't have the high spots of 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 today, and it was a lot more of a a, a brutal and and physical. Yeah, adaptation. it looked like a struggle for dominance, which yeah, very different than what you see a lot of times. And also hot. Yeah. Boom. Indeedle. Indeedly do? We'll go with indeedly do. <laughs> All right. Yes. Millie had no interest in being a wrestling fan. She wanted to be a wrestler. As she put it, immediately I began fantasizing myself in that ring, applying those grips, holds, and throws. She wanted to be in the ring, but this is 1930s, and even men would have a hard time finding a trainer who would take them on. And to mainstream Americans, women were still considered frail and delicate. A quote. Under prolonged and intense physical strain, a girl goes to pieces, wrote physical education <laughs> expert Ethel Perrin in 1928. It's only in the last few decades that women were allowed to compete in ski jumps. The men in charge no longer convinced their uteruses might fall out while attempting it. Seriously, that was their fear. I just have to say that as a woman, if I was told by a medical professional that if I did something, my uterus would literally fall out of my body, I would never leave my home. I would be, <laughs> I would be in a constant state of hysterics. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a terrible thing to tell somebody. I can't I can't imagine. <laughs> hey, hey, don't don't go skiing. Your uterus will fall out. <laughs> but there was already a history of women's wrestling. Women wrestlers began appearing as part of the circus and vaudeville shows in France during the Belle Epoque of the late 1800s. If you're wondering what the Belle Epoque was, watch. Uh, Moulin Rouge, you'll get a basic idea of it. During American circus shows, it was common to have a wrestling strongwoman who would challenge the men in the audience. There, of course, was an erotic element of seeing a woman in skimpy outfits performing athletic moves. This is a time where it was full-length bodysuits were not too removed from Victorian, uh, the Victorian age. But honestly, isn't that the same as men in the ring? Well, sex sells, darling, and nothing, you know, is going to excite a crowd of ignorant farmers more than seeing some woman, like, stretch one of the boys. See, seeing a, a a little flash of ankle and a headlock. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey, that's, you know, that's 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 more milk than the cow's giving well, at no, home, like, darling. It's crazy because, like, even during the match footage that I watched, and I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about that more later, but, like, just they panned to the audience a lot in the, like, excitement and like almost like I say lust but it wasn't like even a sexual lust it's like the same kind of uh expression you see on people watching just like like the cage fights and stuff like they were yeah, into it yeah it was it was very different than what you see from you know our smart wrestling audiences now well and that is a big difference between this time and now because as we've discussed in the past pro wrestling had been exposed several times after 1915, the 1915 wrestling tournament, wrestling was almost entirely a work, but it had to be a realistic work because you would be subject to more scrutiny. You'd be subject to more attempted screw jobs to get over on a champ. So wrestlers, especially the top wrestlers, had to be legitimate tough guys. And because that was their style, that's how it was presented. So it looked and felt like a real fight as it was known in those days. I mean, that's very different to my current wrestling style of pretending I'm a train and rolling over people with my body. But, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Maybe well, it's lost something in the last 
couple decades. Well, it's lost something, but it's gained something because now you watch wrestling and it's a combination of a cartoon, a cage fight, and a comic book. Yes. It's, it's a different type of theater. Like this was a theater of a clash of titans that took themselves very seriously. Now it's a different type of mythology. So you have that type of drama. Now you have this type of drama, I, but it's still drama and it still brings people in. It still draws a type of excitement. It still sells tickets. I honestly feel like on, on that note, if you look at wrestling then versus now, uh, like what you see in, in Japan a lot of times seems a lot closer to what you saw then than what like you see in America nowadays. I mean, it, it still feels like a fight and it feels like a sport. And yeah, and that draws a lot from the fact that catch wrestling uh, via Carl Gotch was brought to Japan kind of late in the game in the worldwide history of pro wrestling. So you would have that direct line catch submission wrestling style being taught in Japan in the 60s, in the 70s. So that legitimate tough guy vibe rode out in Japan a lot longer to this day. I mean, you see a guy like Minoru Suzuki, who you watch, even if it's a worked match, you go, oh my God, that guy could uh, make my ankle touch the, <laughs> yes. touch my mouth yeah. backwards and I would be very sad about it. Yes, that guy has the murder look for sure. Yes. I mean, the fact is, at the time, no one, your average mark, your average fan at one of these shows, local shows, they didn't have TV back then. They barely had radio back then. This is not just pre- Playboy. This is not just pre, you know, uh, Marilyn Monroe. This is pre Betty Page. This is probably the most visceral act any of these fans have ever this seen is, involving this is a OG woman. OG pinup. Yeah, and yeah. and and it was when it was presented as a shoot. So this is like the first time I've ever seen a woman not from my village, and she's wearing like you know, oh my god, and she's fighting like oh yeah, my, yeah, yeah, and the women all look scandalized. It's uh, amazing, it, but they're yeah. but they're super into it too, you know. In 1891, the National Police Gazette sponsored the first women's tournament in a Bowery Tavern in New York City. The title would be passed from women like Josie Wall Ford and Laura Bennett before ending up with Cora Livingston, who won it in Kansas City in 1914. Like Burke, Livingston was much smaller than most of the wrestlers and managed by her husband. They toured the country doing open challenges, offering $25 to any woman who could last 10 minutes with Cora and occasionally take on men as well. That's right, there was intergender wrestling at the start of the 20th century. And these are the same type of challenges that we would see earlier from guys like Strangler Lewis or William Muldoon, the, the circus wrestlers, the vaudeville wrestlers. Like we discussed in our Carnival Wrestling episode, that was the bread and butter of wrestling, was saying, hey, who here in the uh, crowd thinks they can, uh, can take me? The old Farmer Burns plant, the man who became the trainer of the greatest uh, catch wrestler of American history, uh, was a guy that would go and be a, be a mark in the, and by mark, I don't mean a, uh, someone they're trying to work. He was, he was the plant in the stands, man. Farmer Burns, it's, a, it's the oldest trick in the book, darling. <laughs> Gets him every time. Oh, yes. As today, there were plenty of people who hated women's wrestling or intergender wrestling. <laughs> Yes, Wait. no accounting for taste. Did I say people? I meant assholes. Yes, yes. As nerds. one reporter for from the Galveston Daily News wrote, 
I beheld this vicious, countenanced woman wrestler and tussle in the most ungodly manner. It's my okay, heart, Galveston's a shithole anyway. My heart sank and I felt weak and sick that a woman could stoop to such performance. Or John C. Myers, a leading wrestler writer of the day who wrote, women are not fit. Such exhibitions are degrading athletic crimes, should not be permitted and are a challenge to decency, which is just a better worded version of the bullshit you see on Twitter today. I was just about, that's what I was, I, so for those of you that, that can't see what's happening right now, I was just pointing at Nick the entire time he was saying this quote to say, oh, it's just like Twitter now, so, so there you have it. Yeah, I think I read the meme of what you just said with the guy from uh, South Park, you know, the AEW fan from South Park. That's like a, that's like a peek into a uh, lady wrestler's DMs, minus the show me your boobs at the beginning of it. <laughs> oh girl, tell me about it, you know? <laughs> I, I know how it feels a little bit, a little bit, just on that part. It's, it sucks, man, it's, it's really terrible. So as we see already, her dreams of wrestling would be difficult under the best of circumstances. Things got worse for Millie in 1934. She became pregnant soon after watching her first matches, and her husband Is walked that how out it of happens? her life. That I don't know, but her <laughs> husband walked out pretty much after she was pregnant, and there is no way to understate how bad the economy was at that time. Unemployment was over 20%, and the city was subject to dust storms, including one that lasted 36 hours and shut down every factory and refinery. This is a horrible way to live. It's almost unthinkable in modern America, but she had a dream. I don't know how anybody clings to a dream under these circumstances. Maybe that's the only thing that keeps a person going at that time. I don't know. I've never been subjected to that level of, of life stress, but good God, what a way to live. Yeah. I mean, the measure of a, of a champion to me is how much adversity can you face and still have that unified front and that measured mentality and not break and not start having that self-doubt and not start doubting the people in your foxhole. The, the measure of this person to go through these things at this point, it speaks volumes to the the capability of the the mental aspect of being the champion. And so young too. That's what's <sighs> so mind blowing about all this. Cause she's not, she's not even 20 here, right? Right? She's what, 17, 18? 18. And that's kind of when fate stepped in because when she was 18 and pregnant, she saw two men staring at her as she walked up to her restaurant. She assumed they were mocking her appearance and became enraged. She recognized both of them as wrestlers. She'd seen them perform, both had cauliflower ears. She knew who she was talking to. She walked up to them and gave them a piece of her mind and stormed in the cafe. The men followed her and the larger of the two apologized. He said they were admiring her legs and asked for her forgiveness. The other man, Billy Wolf, did not apologize. Billy Wolf was a wrestler. He was a solid grappler and a much hated heel in the Kansas City area. He wasn't handsome like Jim Londos or a legitimately skilled wrestler like Ed Strangler Lewis. He began to branch into promoting with the sort of gimmicks that many felt gave wrestling a black eye, such as wrestling bears or women's wrestling in carnivals. Billy had been drafted in World War I and learned to wrestle in the army, reportedly winning the camp championship while in Kentucky. Again, we see army camps being hotbeds of wrestling action, wrestling education, and spawning champions and stars. Just like in uh, season two of Cobra Kai. I don't, I, I need to watch that show. Just I, kidding, you heard nothing from me. No spoilers. No spoilers. 
<laughs> I guess they wrestle a lot of bears in uh, season two of Cobra Kai. That's going to be my assumption. That's what we'll post on Twitter, acting like I've seen it. Billy Wolf was a master of in-ring manipulation, selling thousands of tickets to people who wanted to see him get his ass kicked. Even successful, he forbade his son from getting involved in the wrestling business. Wolf had left his wife and taken the female wrestler Barbara Ware, who toured on shows with him throughout the Midwest, as his mistress. Wolf was 37 when he met the 18-year-old Millie and began to frequent her diner for one important reason. He charmed her into feeding him off-the-menu favorites, usually for free. Billy Wolf was a dick. Billy Wolf was a dick, and I feel like this isn't the last we'll hear about Billy Wolf. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're going to hear a lot about <laughs> yeah. this guy. It's almost going to feel like a Billy Wolf episode, but it's just he was such a looming larger than life part of her story. It's impossible to separate one from the other for better or for worse, usually for worse, but we're going to get there. Yeah. Imagine Bobby Brown and Whitney Houston at, you know, the pre-World War II. We're talking about a really, really nasty abuser and a terrible man, no scruples, but that's the kind of guy that it would take that cutthroat person to break through into the wrestling business and become the dominant force in any aspect of promotion, let alone something as unproven as women wrestling. And that's uh, that's something that's not just true of wrestling, it's true of most aspects of show business and sports back in these days. People who succeeded were universally terrible fucking people. Throughout all this, she would constantly ask him to train her as a wrestler, and he turned her down every time, at one point asking, why, you ain't no bigger than a pint of piss. After months, he finally gave the young single mother the chance to try out, intending for her to take a beating and never bother him about it again. Instead, she stepped into the ring at the YMCA against an 18-year-old prospect named Gypsy Joe, who outweighed her by anywhere between 15 and 50 pounds, depending on at what point in her life she told the story. Either way, <laughs> she's a worker. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the fish was this big. <laughs> Either way, she had an almost supernatural instinct for grappling and pinned Gypsy Joe twice in less than a minute. Yeah, Gypsy Joe thought, thought shit was sweet, didn't Gypsy he? Gypsy Joe's a bitch. Yeah, he thought shit was sweet. But at least he credit to getting in there and getting your ass whooped by a girl because I'm sure he got murdered. So, after so you the might fact. be about to get to this part, but. Um, my understanding is that good old Billy Wolf was paying off Gypsy Joe to be like, hey, you're going to body what? slam her and you're going to body slam the shit out of her. You know, word for word. I'm sure that's exactly what he said. And, uh, and you know, g get her to give up this dream. And instead of, uh, well, he went to body slam her and she just kind of, she, she turned the tables and uh, managed to get on top of him and uh, get his back. That's, that's pretty much how it went down. He picked her up for a body slam. She just managed to hook his head. So when she came down, she rolled him right up and had a pin. <laughs> that beautiful. is beautiful. Wolf was shocked, asked for a second. This time, Millie figured out the, what just happened to her, picked him up and slammed him and pinned him. Yes! Which is, oh! like, which is extra amazing because so for all of the listeners here, who are, are not wrestlers, maybe you're fans, maybe you're just really fucking into history or pro wrestling history, body slamming someone who doesn't want to be body slammed, especially someone who outweighs you, yeah, is, is rather difficult. Spectacular, especially yeah. as a trained wrestler. Yeah. He got, he got knocked off his feet. 
He obviously didn't take her seriously. And it, from that point on, she proved that she had the ferocity to get it done. And if you're wondering how did a small woman like Millie Bliss uh, pick up a somewhat trained wrestler, if you're thinking about it in like judo or jujitsu terms, think about a three-stripe white belt getting his ass handed to him by somebody who just steps in. Google Mildred Burke and look what her legs look like. She she had the thighs of a power lifter. She could probably pick me up and put me on my head. I wouldn't uh, be surprised. So, so by I'm that. glad you brought that up because that's one thing that all of you, please Google a picture of Mildred Burke if you're listening to this because she is not, I mean, she's gorgeous, but she is built like a brick shit house. She's got delts. She's got legs on her. I mean, she is, she looks strong and yeah, it makes it completely believable. And while you can never trust a wrestling story at face value in the long history of tall tales to build legends, but this one seems reliable based on how little of the story changed as it was told over the decades. After the shock of a tryout, Wolf began putting Millie through intense training. She learned to wrestle, she worked hard at calisthenics, and all this while waiting tables and raising an infant during the depression. Years later, Wolf would tell a reporter, I sure had this little girl figured dead wrong. I hired a kid and paid him a quarter to get in the ring with Mildred. I said to him, you give it to her good, and she'll never come around here bothering us again. Well, this little boy gets in, <laughs> gets in with the ring and does his level best, but she knocks him out so fast that it leaves me thinking that maybe she's got something there I didn't see. But one thing he did see was money to be made. As he concentrated on the development of Millie Bliss, he ended his relationship with Barbara Ware. I assume this was for personal reasons, because at the time, Ware was a far safer bet to make money on the wrestling circuit. So now Millie found herself a young woman, single with a child, who had to grow up fast and ended up in a relationship with a much older man who was known for womanizing and cruelty. Again, bit of a disclaimer, bit of a warning. There's going to be some ugliness down the road. If you missed that first part, now's the time to turn back. Billy Wolf is a dick. She was, however, not some doe-eyed innocent. She saw him as a business opportunity and needed to secure her future as a wrestler. And after getting enough training to be dangerous, the circus was calling. With the rise of post-Civil War, westward expansion in railroads, the carnivals traveled nonstop and wrestling was a big part of these shows. As you might wonder, having listened to previous episodes, why did the big stars of the day perform at circuses? Because there were only a handful of actual arenas in the country at the time. Baseball was about the only big sport, and boxing was illegal in most states. P.T. Barnum had a hand in this, as his Museum of Freaks and Oddities was just a mile down the street from Henry Hill's Saloon, where grapplers like William Muldoon would compete almost nightly. Barnum loved the fast-paced action of the new catch-as-catch-can style and took it on the road with a shooter or hooker to work the marks and two costumed wrestlers to put on entertaining contests, in quotations. Yes, it was, it was a quite, it was wild west. The, the, the concept of working the people, you, you set them up and they had these, these formulas that they could take from town to town, territory to territory, take the act on the road and work the same hustle again and again to a fresh group of people. You, you, it, was, it was beautiful because they learned 
in real time how to elicit the emotional response that made money, man. And that's why the carny roots are so interwoven in the history of this business. Well, and that's, that's something that if you look at now, you can translate it to like house shows, even with major companies yeah. as you have, they're putting on the same act, practicing whatever they're going to have to do on these big televised shows behind the scenes, you know, in all these little small towns that aren't getting televised. So yeah, it's a lot of parallels. In 1935, Billy, Millie, and her son Joe headed off to join the JT Landis Circus in Abilene, Kansas. When they arrived, Wolf discovered that she had sold the restaurant and gave all the money to her mother. He was enraged. She realized how vulnerable she was living with a potentially violent, rage-filled man and her not having a dollar to her name. He told her that he wouldn't marry her until after they could see if they could make it, both in the business and personally. He told her that if she left him, he would make sure she was jailed for violating the Mann Act, which was crossing a state line for immoral purposes, and she believed he could do this and was terrified of losing her son and going to jail. Not horrific emotional manipulative abuse at all. Oh, I was going to say, oh good, gaslighting. Yeah, Billy Wolf is a dick. That's my opinion on, on this matter. I mean, I don't want to get into the nuance of the level of abuse that happened. We, can, we, we can't avoid it, but it is disgusting and I, it's really upsetting, but it just speaks to the level of perseverance that she had in, in following her dream, that she was not gonna stop under circumstances well, that are just absolutely horrifying. And something that's, that's so hard, I mean, to, to recognize and acknowledge is that in that period of time, as a woman, if you wanted to get ahead, you almost had to hitch yourself to a man in, in some way, shape or fashion. Otherwise, no one was going to take you seriously. You weren't going to be able to do anything. So, and, and the unfortunate fact about that, um, not that that isn't unfortunate enough, is you have men who are perfectly cognizant that that is the case and take full advantage of it, like you can see here. And Millie was not a star at this point. She performed in the back of the circus in an open-air tent, dressed in a black bathing suit and boxing shoes, with Billy Wolf barking to the crowd about how anyone could win $25 by defeating her inside of 10 minutes. The challengers had to be within 25 pounds of her weight. At the time, Wolf changed her name from Bliss to Burke to make it sound stronger and to avoid the ignorance is bliss jokes. This was not an easy life. Though strong and gifted, she was still an undersized woman who was learning the wrestling game as she fought women and men every single day with hell to pay if she lost. While there were plenty of works involved, many sticks stepping up to uh, put her over, most were legitimate matches against townsfolk. All the while, she was dependent on Wolf, who was fucking every carnival gal he could get his hands on. She knew how to leverage bigger men for throws and developed a submission game strong enough to put away the rough townies that thought they'd be earning an easy payday. She claimed to have had over 150 such matches with only one loss as a trained wrestler caught her with a knee in the midsection that took the wind out of her. In her words, I wrestled farmers, mechanics, carpenters, and blacksmiths in a bewildering array of body types and wrestling styles. All the while, she was still the best mother she could be. Jill later recalled, I remember crawling up the pillows in the back of the trailer, looking out at the window at the carnival lights where the tent was where she wrestled. I remembered looking and thinking, that's where my mom was. 
Millie became a genuine star attraction, drawing crowds night after night. In her hometown of Coffeyville, she wrestled and beat a skilled wrestler, then did the same to the man's wife. Unfortunately, the wife didn't didn't know how to wrestle, and Millie's toe caught in the canvas as the woman went deadweight during a throw, and Millie's knee popped out of place. Oh, shit. She assumed her career was over, as did Wolf. Wolf put her to work selling tickets for the other women's matches and various other jobs. Wolf constantly told her that he should get rid of her. During the time with her leg in a cast, she developed her upper body into the finely sculpted physique we see in photos. When the cast came off, her leg healed improperly and she was walking with a limp. The only reason Wolf kept her around was to train her replacements after she begged him not to kick her and her son out of the car in Kansas City. However, while training Wilma Gordon, a young tough girl from Nebraska, she was demonstrating a flying mare takedown and her knee popped back into place. In her words, it was like something out of the Bible, a miracle. She was soon back in the ring, taking on all comers, including a giant of a woman, Missouri, who demanded a match. The woman was a hulking six foot three and Burke oh, said shit. she assumed that this was the end of her career. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, I would assume the same thing. What a tall drink of water for that, that era Ooh, of time. Man. Yeah. Millie was able to take the woman down, but the much smaller Burke couldn't put the giant shoulders down to the canvas. So she had to switch gears and caught the woman with a head scissors around the neck and made her submit. Goddamn. Another time, a woman challenged her outside the tent, refusing to wait for the show to fight the wrestler. Surrounded by a large, non-paying crowd, Burke beat the woman senseless in a street fight. The police later told her that the woman was a notorious gangster's girlfriend and they had to weather death threats over it for some time. That's a good angle, man. I hope they got some return business on that endeavor, even if it if it was a shoot. Let's hope we can get to get some money out of this kind of thing, because that's not the type of girl you get to beat up every day. Yeah, that seems like the sort of situation where she probably came to Wolf like, oh, my God, this woman attacked me and I had to beat her senseless. And he was only mad because he couldn't sell tickets. Yeah. Billy Wolf is a dick. (laughs) That's the recurring theme. At the end of 1935, she finished a match, and as she exited the ring, a jockey from the adjacent racetrack jumped on her back and demanded a match. He put up the $700 in winnings he had from his races against the $25 to beat her. She made short work of the jockey. No pretense. (laughs) Pun definitely intended. (laughs) And sat on him in the ring to make the crowd roar. The humiliated jockey was left sitting in shock as the crowd left. Millie, always a soft touch, asked Wolf to give him half his money back. He, of course, refused to do that. I think you've had a little similar encounter like that in the ring. Didn't you do something? Wasn't there something that you were involved in that involved a a jockey of some (laughs) description? Uh, So Heidi Howitzer um, likes to do... I love her. I I love her. Um, Me. Likes to do uh, Micromania wrestling tours. And uh, one of them, one of the uh, jockeys, we'll call him, Battle Royal, decided to grab my tits and say, honk, honk. So I went blind with rage and (laughs) proceeded to beat the piss out of him. There is video, it's fantastic. I <laughs> cheered as you threw some serious fucking punches on that little girl. Yeah, outside. yeah, if you, want, if you want to watch it, it's on Twitter. Um, you can even see AEW star Abaddon in the background watching on in uh, both joy and dismay. Yes, horror. 
Yes, Corey. <laughs> it's a good time. In another dark episode, Wolf beat Joe because he was crying in the next room while Wolf was having one of his many affairs. Millie took her son and left the carnival, hitchhiking to the next town. <sighs> the driver tried to force himself on her. Jesus and after Christ. fighting him off, she was left on the side of the road with her small son. She walked to the nearest gas station, called Wolf, and he came to pick her up. She warned him that if he ever put his hands on her son again, she'd wait until he slept and would cut the head from his body, as well she should. I love her. Yeah, both of them. <laughs> By the end of 1935, the carnival season had ended. Billy Wolf and Mildred Burke were looking to break out of the circus and into arena shows. This was difficult because mixed gender matches and women's wrestling were illegal in many states and frowned upon in many others. Fortunately, the regulation of wrestling was scattershot and poorly enforced, so they were able to find towns to put on these matches. According to Burke, she approached promoter Gus Karras about promoting intergender wrestling, which he agreed to, if anything, just to pop flagging ticket sales with the novelty matches. The challenge was against any man who was close to her own weight of 121 pounds. The first happened on February 13, 1936 in Bethany, Missouri, in front of 200 paying audience members. She took on Cliff Johnson. She submitted him with a hammerlock in seven minutes. She wrestled intergender matches all across the Midwest, including a match where her opponent refused to show up and had to be dragged to the arena by the police to ensure the audience got a show. Yes, a capital form. The show must go on, darling. If only uh, video existed back then so we could get the footage of uh, her opponent being dragged back to the arena. Yeah, I want to know who it's has that kind of heat to get the, uh, the cops to drag you to the arena to take that beating. <laughs> well, it's like we discussed you know, with situations like the Evan Strangler Lewis story where a referee didn't want to restart a match, so the cops dragged him out and told them to find a new referee. Sometimes... A good wrestling match supersedes any legal precedent. <laughs> yeah, we got to get the match in the ring, darling. Well, this is a time where, you know, we've talked about before, there wasn't a lot going on as far as entertainment. So if you don't see that match go down, there's a good chance that crowd is going to riot and trash the place. As one does. In another match, she took on a boxer named Buck Thompson, who managed to spike Millie on her head and knock her out. Oh. But he didn't bother pinning her. He walked away to his corner. She came to and attacked him from behind as he was in his corner. He turned and the bell rang. She technically lasted 10 full minutes and won by default. He got no money. The next day though, Millie was unable to move due to the injury and was paralyzed for four days. Billy Wolf, showing a little sympathy, was annoyed that she couldn't help him apply the salve for the case of crabs that he picked up. <laughs> As she was recovering, she asked, <laughs> yeah. Billy Wolf is a dick. As she was recovering. We all dated that guy in her 20s, right? <laughs> oh, yes. Some of us in our 30s. <laughs> Jesus. As she was recovering, she asked Wolf to feed her son, Joe. Wolf jammed the spoon in the child's face so hard that it cut his mouth. She told Wolf that she was going to leave him, and he punched her in the face. She followed through and left him, moving to L.A. Wolf, of course, started a campaign to charm her into forgiving him and returned to the Midwest and to the ring. In late 1936, she joined Wolf for a tour of the South. 
The arenas were shabby, the crowd segregated, and none of it was pleasant. They had trouble getting her booked because promoters wouldn't book women because women couldn't draw, but they couldn't prove that they could draw unless they were booked, a fun catch-22 there. Finally, they found an opponent for her, Clara Mortensen, a 20-year-old blonde who had been an attraction in California. Like many wrestlers of the day, she claimed to be a champion and had been called a top women wrestler by Ring Magazine. So the great thing about this, too, is the internet doesn't exist, and uh, we've got print media, which is great, but print media is only uh, across so many regions in a lot of a lot of ways. So you can just tell people you're the champ, and uh, that's 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 for them to believe. And that's something we've talked about many times in other episodes, where so many times a match was listed as a title match. What title? That guy says he's a champion. Oh, well, I beat him, so now I'm a champion, right? I guess so. Well, cool, now I'm the champion. And then that guy goes on and bills himself still as the champion. Somebody else beats him and now goes, I'm the champion too. So you would have all these unsanctioned champions because there really wasn't many sanctioning bodies. So it was just the wild west of bullshit that nobody could call you on. <laughs> yeah, it was a common hustle at the time. But I, I, I dare say that she was a champion for just being a woman wrestler in this era. This oh, is God, such a kidding. such a dangerous and uphill battle to climb to break through this this wall and this un, uncharted territory. And, and these are true pioneers. So, yeah, she's absolutely a champion in Chongo's book. Mortensen was also managed by a former male wrestler, Bluebeard Bill Lewis. I don't know much about him. That's a great name. It really is. Yeah. And across the South, the two women had a series of matches in front of increasingly large audiences. Many times, their matches stole the show from the male main eventers. Millie's job was to put over Mortensen every night, much to her chagrin. She assumed and thought she deserved more. According to Burke, Clara was rather full of herself, so one night she dragged her ass from one end of the ring to the other before taking the pin just to teach her a lesson. Oh, I like that. I like the sp this fighting spirit in that. That's a, a, a telling, a telling uh, sort of exchange of things to come. Yes. And that's actually a story we'll hear more uh, going forward because legitimate tough guys will, and tough women, will go into the ring, but their job is to put over the star. The star is an asshole, but can't really wrestle to save their life. So they'll beat the ungodly dog shit out of them and then take the pin to keep the uh, the finish intact. Yes, you gotta have the worker that makes the, the, the star, the pushed per performer, you know? The, the, I guess, the greatest martial artist in the movie is not always the star of the movie, you know what I mean? It's true. And finally, on January 28th, 1937 in Chattanooga, the now 21-year-old Mildred Burke won the title from Clara Mortensen. What title? Who knows? But hey, she's the champion now. There are rumors that Burke won the title by shooting on Mortensen, but nothing <laughs> confirms this. I like to think so. Yeah. I, like, I would want that to be true. In my heart of hearts. Yeah, yeah. We'll, just, we'll just say that's true because that's the better story, and that's what I wanted to Yeah, that's our version here, man. She you heard gave, it here. She yes. gave Clara a Canadian destroyer. Yeah, she, <laughs> she got yeah. No, no lockup. <laughs> just right fucking into it. At the time, their matches were getting great reviews and building big audiences, but many made claims that this didn't mean much for women's wrestling as a whole. The title switch was big news and put both their names in papers across the country. It was a huge amount of publicity with photos from the match even making it into Life magazine, 
Burke found herself sharing the front page of the sports section with Seabiscuit and Cinderella man James Braddock, and Millie wanted to keep up her momentum. Clara Mortensen won the title back on February 11, 1937, in a screw job finish with a fast count that got the fans heated. There are accounts of a brutal fistfight between the women backstage afterwards. Okay, As, that that definitely makes me think that it was a shoot to take the title. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah, if she had to get the double cross to get it back, then it, it, I think it's uh, turnabout is fair play. It's a dirty business. I, I like I like to think Millie beat the shit out of her backstage too. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I, I'm. Yeah, this is exactly what happened. And this is the era where we see this, where even though wrestling was a work, if you were a better wrestler than your opponent you could take the belt off of them and there really wasn't a whole lot that could be done about it. Yeah. I bet Bluebeard had something to do with the old screw job. Never oh, trust that dastardly Bluebeard. Yes, but it's so luxury, you know, you earn the name. Uh, I've actually never seen the picture, but I've seen What's What's his name? Bluebeard, Billy something, Billy Jean. They had another match in Charleston, West Virginia, being the first women's wrestling match held in the city. It's the last match on record between the two and was by all accounts a violent match that left both bloody messes and ended in an odd fashion with different newspapers giving contradictory results and both women claiming victory years later. The women legitimately hated each other for the rest of their lives. 40 years later, the Cauliflower Alley Club tried to get both to show up to be honored and neither was willing to take part if the other was going to be there. I heard, I, I read that and I, it, it made me laugh because yes, the the rivalry and the feud was so bloody that forty years later, like no fuck this bitch. Yeah, that that is that is a testament to the competitive spirit of both of them. But it's also kind of sad that the two apex pioneers of of women wrestling at the time couldn't celebrate what they accomplished together well, at some point. Especially considering how few women were able to reach that kind of pinnacle at the time but still comical. And it was about this time that Billy Wolf and Mildred Burke got married. This was not a romantic- Damn it! Yeah, this was not a romantic wedding. This wasn't something poetic and beautiful. This was two people who saw the other as a resource that they needed to lock down for their financial future. Wolf saw Millie as an investment that he was gonna make a ton of money off of and Millie, in turn, looked at Billy Wolf as the gatekeeper to her career. They just looked at each other, saw dollar signs, and decided to codify it under tax law. They kept the marriage mostly under wraps because a single woman in the ring sells more tickets than a married one. That's just the way it is. But Wolf and Burke claimed her title to be the lightweight women's title despite no athletic commission or body sanctioning it. But this is wrestling, where the most, <laughs> where the most publicized story always wins the day. They worked hard to build her image with showbiz razzle-dazzle. She worked on her muscle definition, always showed up in makeup and wore dazzling costumes that were white with sequins, so she would literally sparkle in the light as she made her way to the ring. Her ring entrance was Gorgeous from all accounts. OG Ric Flair. Yeah, what a pioneer. I mean, what a what a lady, what a badass, what a champion, man. I mean, she has overcome so much. She has had to fight and navigate. And I guarantee you, she married that dick knowing that 
I'm going to get this guy. She has too much fighting spirit to not play the long game. I appreciate the kind of sort of, what do you call it? Um, it's almost like a, a royal family. You marry for the position. Oh, she knew exactly she, what she was doing with yes, that. Like yes. it's, it's, and it's unfortunate and it's sad that he was a piece of shit, but... I mean, she she definitely manipulated him. She well, I hope that she got everything out of it, and then and then cut his yeah cut his gizzard. But moving forward, things were about to get weird in the world of professional wrestling, and Mildred Burke damn near had to be the savior of pro wrestling in America. At the time, the business was controlled and regulated by the trust, which was the kind of proto NWA. They existed before that, and. They had booking meetings in New York, much like the NWA did later. The Trust had decided to have Strangler Lewis put over the inferior wrestler Jim Landos in a title match. However, the New York Daily News published an article exposing the match as fake. The year before... Uh, real quick, I gotta say, the Trust sounds like some yeah. dastardly... Yeah, what a faction like, name, right? Yeah. The trust. Like a supervillain group. Yes. Yeah. Like, were they represented by Wolfram and Hart from Angel? <laughs> yeah. For That's those like, of us who like shows, vampire shows from the early 2000s. It's so weird. There's no nerd crossover no, here. No, they're not in the... Not in the pro wrestling history, nerds. Preposterous. I'm wearing a Frodo and Sam 2020 I Will Take the Ring to Mordor shirt right now, so I, yeah. The year before, the Trust had kicked out one of their members, Jack Pfeffer. Due to a business disagreement over Landos's career, he found himself on the outs with the organization, and having been betrayed by his business partners, he sought revenge. He went to the press and spilled the beans about predetermined nature of wrestling with many shameful details shared with reporters. This led to turmoil, disagreements over title shots and booking overall, and the trust split apart. Well, the word uh, kayfabe hadn't come into uh, play here yet, correct? No, no. Kayfabe was an old carnival term. Kayfabe was a carny word uh, pretty much to switch on the carny language, kizarn to make sure that the police or the marks had no idea what you were talking about while you were trying to scam them. And kayfabe continued, and the only reason we really have the carny language today was the Gold Dust Trio using carny terms when they were telegraphing yeah. each other to set up bookings to make sure that the telegraph yeah, operators operate. had no idea what the fuck was going on. I fucking love wrestling. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the trust split apart. Worse still, the economy got even worse with unemployment shooting back up over the 20% mark. Pfeffer had been relegated to running freak show wrestling when Billy Wolf contacted him about promoting women's wrestling. Wolf had a small troupe of Burke, Mae Weston, and Wilma Gordon, and insisted that the women needed to be paid better than the men because they were a rare attraction, especially with most states banning women's wrestling. Pfeffer operated out of the Northeast and could do little to help Wolf, so they were relegated to the South and Southwest. The outcry against women's wrestling is akin to the shit you see on Twitter today. California <laughs> banned it on the grounds of being improper and vulgar. The state commission considered it an encroachment by women into a man's sport, and I kid you not, the Nazis in Germany used Burke's image and propaganda to show how brutal Americans are. You know what? Talk about being over. Like, what a chance. Yes. Oh, man, that's amazing. That is amazing. That I is hero that status. I, like, I really do. Yeah, if you are, like, Nazi propaganda, like, you are, you're over. You, you've made it, brother. You're like, yeah, yeah exactly. Real, yeah. Life, real life Captain America. That's, yeah. some, that's some gangster shit, for real. 
In September 1937, she wrestled a local champion in Jacksonville that drew the largest crowd to a sporting event that didn't involve Jack Dempsey. Hot damn. The following week, she was off to Cuba, where she was greeted like a movie star, with the pier overrun with wrestling fans holding banners reading, Welcome Mildred Burke, Welcome Women's Champion. She was featured in newsreels when she arrived and was escorted to meet President Ramon Grau San Martin at his mansion, who kissed her hand and gave her a tiny white puppy as a gift. The fate of the puppy remains unknown. I like to think that the puppy and Mildred Burke lived happily. Yeah, I don't want to hear any any nonsense about Wolf and the puppy. We're going to have to go full. We're going to have to go. I I do love the uh, presumptuousness of giving somebody a puppy as a gift. It's like, here's 10 years of responsibility. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, really stressful gift there. Really loaded. At this point, she was mentioned in the same conversations as Ed Strangler Lewis and Jim Londos when it came to star power. The difference is that Millie was barely into her 20s, while the other two were on the wrong side of 40, with no real star successor in sight. And she was now making real money. And despite being a complete pile of shit as a person, Billy Wolf was a master of publicity for her, getting her featured in national magazines. She presented herself to the media as a matter of fact, polite, but refusing to give an inch and pretend to be a girly girl, insisting that women belong in the ring on equal footing with men. Atta girl. Real life Wonder Woman. Yeah. Just phenomenal. She didn't care much for intergender matches at this point, stating, if I should beat a man wrestler, the fans would claim it was a frame up. And if he beats me, they would say that I was no good, just a woman. And in a time where, despite we keep seeing the exposure of the business, it was still seen much more a real fight than it is today. So I fully understand that. It's no longer watching Black Widow take on a bunch of aliens. There was a heavy bias against, more so than even today, um, things are not exactly perfect. There was a great bias against women being in the ring at all, let alone facing off against a man. Um, How many intergender matches have you had? Oh, fuck. A whole bunch. Like, uh, over 20. I mean, a, a lot, a lot of my, and, and I'm not, I'm not a small woman, but I, I've been in the ring with, you know, Hunter Gray, who's 300 pounds, <laughs> definitely uh, outsized me. Filter, who's 6'5". Yeah, quite a few. Kikitaro, a Japanese yeah. uh, legend there. Hey, you oh. both have wrestled Kikitaro yes. in the same ring, I think on the same night. Oh, yes. yeah. Who, yes. who booked that shit? Yeah. What? Look, and speaking of who booked that shit, I've had one intergender match. Do you know that? And do you know who my tag team partner was? Oh, it was me. It was you, darling. Yes. yes, that's true story. Yes. yes, so fun little bit of trivia side note to uh, to this lovely podcast and your your guest star i actually started out my wrestling career managing chongo if anyone can truly ever manage chongo. yeah i was about to say that sounds like a terrible position yeah the yeah. chongo whisper sorry more of a, sorry yeah. i spent the first part of my career wrangling chongo yes the ray yes much more accurate <laughs> term. <laughs> and the, oh we had fun <laughs> back in those chongo, days whoever the fuck you are yeah. she, uh, she made sure that it wasn't a halfway house it was a halfway home mm. Thank you, darling. Near and dearest to my heart. And we were such a tremendous tag team, and we are t- tag teaming this podcast, and this is a glorious segue. <laughs> yeah, but intergender wrestling, even now, it's there's still a lot of debate about it. There's a lot of controversy. 
but there are still homes for it. Um, then, you know, yeah, like just getting in a ring was a struggle, much less getting to wrestle against men and make it look legitimate. And that's something I love about the things we've been discussing on the show, because there's nothing new under the sun. People keep talking about how, oh, wrestling was exposed in the 90s and it used to be, everybody used to think it was real. No, we've discussed how people knew it was a, a, a con job back in the 1800s. People talk about, oh, women wrestling, that's, you know, meh. No, it's been happening <laughs> since posh. the 1890s. Intergender wrestling used to fill arenas in the goddamn depression. These are not new concepts. These are not new gimmicks. These have been recycled decade after decade after decade. And people somehow act like, oh, won't somebody think of the children? If, uh, <laughs> it's, oh, it, it glorifies domestic violence. No, saying a woman has no place in an intergender match is saying that in a world of make-believe superpowers, she cannot hold her own. Well, and it's absolutely ludicrous when you look at someone with... Uh, I, so Mildred Burke, who has a pedigree of wrestling men multiple times, trained and untrained, and being able to take them down because of skill, but even taking skill out of account, uh, like I said, I'm not a small woman. I'm 5'7", 170 pounds. I've got some muscle on me. She's and literally he, holding me over her head while doing this. <laughs> I've deadlifted a Prius 12 times in 60 seconds. Yeah, of grade uh, A beef. Of grade A beef. Of grade A beef. Let me put myself over forever. But... Uh, if I get in a ring with a guy who, you know, a lot of average sized men are anywhere from between 150 to 175 pounds, it's believable that I would be able to take one of these guys on, but there's still, again, controversy over it. So someone like Mildred, when you're uh, dealing with a scenario where women aren't even considered equals to men, uh, I can only imagine the kind of lashback that received. Yeah, I imagine it's almost like the opposite kind of uh, blowback that you would get now or the opposite kind of heat because what they wouldn't want, they probably wouldn't want to see a man emasculated to that degree at that time by actually losing to a woman. And that's why they're going to cry, cry wolf and cry it's a work anytime she actually beats somebody. Correct. It's not even the disturbance of, oh, a man hit a woman. Yeah. Because apparently exactly. that's normal. It's that, it's that a, man, uh, yeah, a man lost to a woman. And, that's, yes. and that kind of ties yeah. back to what we talked about during uh, the Strangler Lewis episode, during the circus episodes, that's the beauty of catch wrestling. You know, if it's a pin, you can say it's a fluke. I slipped on uh, my, my shoelace, whatever. But when you submit to a hold, there's no taking that back. Mm -hmm. And men after man after man during these circus matches, during these open challenges going town to town, found themselves in submission holds having to say, please, ma'am, will you let me go? <laughs> that's, that's, and you think about what I'm, what I'm like, I mean, you think about like how a man presented himself in the thirties. Oh yeah. What, like picture somebody like Clark Gable or Humphrey Bogart having to ask a woman to please let him go. It is unthinkably humiliating. Please. Especially man. the one out of the whole room of guys like that, that actually got in the ring with it, her to like a, yeah, show the so, little girl so a lesson or whatever. Is it emasculating? in a ring with with just that woman in there with you having to say <laughs> could you could could we not you have an entire audience of people watching this predominantly male again i would i would imagine oh yeah this is yeah this is i mean this is it, i can't fathom what it was like to go back to the farm the next day and have, <laughs> have, so you heard what you heard what happened to cletus yeah 
But but we know this from jujitsu. You take you take a girl of that size and give her 150 competition matches against men, women that all have one, two, maybe a few matches because she's wrestling somebody new in every single town. These guys aren't going and accumulating that same number of matches. When you've got that level of experience under your belt, you're going to be a bad motherfucker. And I know a lot of women that could submit almost any man walking right now with that level of training, and it absolutely adds up. Yeah, we see that in the comment section on MMA messaging boards. Every time there is a major women's Every time there's a major woman star in MMA, oh, Ronda Rousey and Amanda Nunez. What, well, Shevchenko? Yeah, you'll see I love her. so many uh, dudes who are like, women fighters, blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, women are like, blah, 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 blah. I, like, I could, like any of them couldn't like beat the dog shit out of any one of those guys. Yeah, yeah. you know, you, the toughest people in the world are in the comment section. Mm. Everybody knows that. I mean, I've been tapped out by a black belt woman who I outweighed by, I think, a good 50 pounds at the time. And you know what I went? Fuck, tap, tap, tappity tap. Thank you for letting me go in time, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, let me tell you something, brother. As a, I've fought the baddest men in the planet, legitimately. And, and I have never had my ass handed to me worse than by Mama Chongo. That is a shoot. <laughs> when I was 15 years old and I thought it was about that life, she showed me what time it really was. Mama Chongo was a sergeant in the army back in the day, man. And she spun me upside down and had me pinned against the wall, had one hand on my trachea, grabbed my ball, started turning. She's, and I, no, this is a shoot. And I said, Mommy, Mommy, please let go. And she goes, always remember this moment. And that was last Thanksgiving, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I meant when Chago Jr. was 15. But that's oh. a true story, man. The power, the power of a determined woman cannot be understated. Yeah, um, you, even if you're here in Denver, if you're friends with us, uh, look at locals like Thug Rose mm. or Kazagongo, who what uh, is the person who made me tap to an arm bar and I tapped very, very quickly because she fucking had me. Women will kick your ass. And more than they do, they should kick your ass. Yes, and the, the key with this style of, of wrestling and competition, the art of the submission. There is no other martial arts style that one successfully executed technique ensures victory. A boxer can hit you once, it does not ensure victory. A wrestler can take you down once, it does not ensure victory. Well but and one submission hold successfully completed, the fight's over. And you watch watch these matches again. Um, just Google or look up YouTube. Mildred Burke. I watched her versus Mae Weston, and almost the entire match is grappling, changing holds, trying to assert dominance. There's one point where Mildred uh, has May like wrapped up in the ropes and like slingshots her out of him, and I'm like, man, that looks like it felt like shit. Like, none of this stuff feels good. And they look like they know what they're doing. And that's a cool point to bring up right now, because you actually got to watch some of her matches. How would you describe her in-ring style, and how would you describe her in-ring presentation? Uh, she's very aggressive, that's for sure. Like, anytime she has the other girl down, she's throwing uppercuts like you wouldn't believe. Just haymakers. <laughs> anytime you throw, see Mildred Burke throw a strike, she is throwing that strike like she wants to take the other person's head off. And it's amazing. Um, you don't see that kind of uh, <sighs> deliberate intensity. Yeah, yeah, intensity like these days from a lot of people because she doesn't throw a lot of strikes. But again, when she does, it's it's absurd. But yeah, just um, 
How would you describe her on a scale from one to Ruby Rays, as far as intensity of strikes? <laughs> Ruby uh, Rays, uh, one of my favorite wrestlers. She is a star, mainly in California. Love having her here for Respect and Triple L. And she will do some uh, release Germans and throw some lariats and backfists that look like Maybe you should call the police. <laughs> I, I, there, there's a video clip of me running to give her a shoulder tackle and I just like fly into the air. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, definitely like a 10. Um, and it's crazy too, because you've already established uh, at the beginning of this, Mildred was not a large woman. I mean, she's like 5'3", five, 5'4". Five, yeah, I mean, lines. if you were looking at her and she wasn't in her gear, you'd be like, oh, who's this little lady? Yeah, well, she's I mean, so cute. Yeah, right, um, exactly. But yeah, she was not a heavyweight. She wasn't like a Jessica Havoc type. She wasn't uh, a big woman. She was she was petite, she was light, mm -hmm. but she was, she was muscled. She yep. looked fantastic because that's one thing she made sure of was she didn't get too hulkish. She wanted to have functional, but still impressive to the eye muscles. Yeah, she looked fantastic. I mean, you could see all the muscle definition, but she wasn't, I mean, as women love to say these days, bulky. I mean, she still looked very feminine, but she was quick. Um, and she would grab a hold and throw it on so quickly. I mean, it was it, it, just absolutely insane watching her work. I mean, the, uh, May would get on top for maybe 30 seconds, if that, and then Millie was right back on top of her. Relentless. On November 17, 1938, she faced off against Betty Nichols in Columbus for what would be an important trilogy for women's wrestling as a whole that ended with Nichols winning Burke's title after what Burke claimed was a sucker punch that left her reeling. This was followed by a violent rematch that saw Burke's face being battered and swollen in a draw and Burke regaining the title in the third match after having injured Nichols after throwing her out of the ring before pinning her. Atta girl. Whether the sucker punch, the excessive violence, the injury being thrown out of the ring was a work, a shoot, or somewhere in between, nobody knows for sure. But one thing that is for certain is women's wrestling was such a precarious position that the screw jobs were a constant threat. And this is true of wrestling as a whole, but it seems more so with women at this point that if one thing went slightly wrong, one move was a little stiffer than expected, the assumption is this person is trying, trying to shoot on me. You know, this <laughs> trying to shoot on me. And you know, we hear this from other wrestlers, from Ed Lewis to Luthez of the time. You just never knew when somebody was trying to what, test you for real. And when that happened, you didn't fuck around. So like I said, it could be an accident that turned into a shoot. It could have been a work entirely. Who the hell knows? But whatever the situation, this led to a surge of young women wanting to be pro wrestlers, like the then 19-year-old Gladys Gillum, who tried out for Wolf's group against Wilma Gordon. Gordon beat the hell out of her, but her toughness impressed everyone enough to train her. Wolf gave her the nickname Gladys Killem Gillum, which was one of the greatest <laughs> monikers of the day. That is so clever. <laughs> she was tasked with putting Burke over night after night as they toured town to town, and she became the perfect heel for Burke's babyface, able to whip up the crowd into a frenzy wanting to see her beaten. This is something we'll see kind of throughout her career where 
Mildred Burke was a baby face in almost like a lucha sense as a technical. She was a very technical wrestler, no fouls, all clean moves, very, very skilled. So the perfect heel as far as booking was a wild woman who would throw punches, throw kicks, you know, bite her when her when the ref wasn't looking. You needed somebody wild so your technique won the day. And that was her bread and butter booking wise for most of her career. Yeah, and as we saw with with many of the great uh, shooters and hookers from from the turn of the century, they their their title reigns started in dominant fashion in legitimate competition, and it became a a matter of necessity to work a gimmick in the match. Whether you're talking about William Aldo doing the multiple falls and having to get multiple takedowns in a certain amount of time, the the she she came and she sharpened her teeth fighting night after night and now she's getting put in the position to carry the ball at the the highest point of women's wrestling at this time and it's something we saw even more recent in legitimate fighting with ronda rousey where the thrill of rousey was watching those amazing judo throws those amazing submission moves against the more aggressive brawling style women there's just something about human nature where we're excited by the brawling but we're impressed by the cool technical skill to put the brawler down. Oh, and, and Mildred was so clean, like so incredibly clean. Like there'd be occasionally you'd see cuts of the match where there'd be hair pulling and, you know, all the, the dirty, violent stuff. And then boom, hold, boom, hold. Yeah. And that's something that was lost and kind of jumping ahead in history past the era of Mildred Burke. For many years in the 60s, 70s, even the 80s, the women's matches were not good. The wrestling <laughs> was a- How a dare you? Yeah, it was a shoulder tackle, a lot of hair pulling, very cat fight-esque because it was, what's the nice way to put it? Marketed as softcore pornography. Yep. I remember, I mean, honestly, like, I don't know what my wrestling uh, experience would be in life if I wasn't watching Glow at uh, you know, <laughs> midnight as a kid on my little TV, which was, I watched it because I loved wrestling, but there was that sexual element of it, of like the cat fight that was marketed very, very well for better or for worse. It sold tickets, it sold right, VHSs. Well, all you have to look at is the backstep that women's wrestling took with the I guess I'll call it the divas era but uh, when it became tits and ass over being able to legitimately when you go from the uh, jumping bomb angels to you know I won't name any names but yeah the divas era and WWE and oh you know absolutely because you actually saw at a certain point WWF now WWE establishing a women's tag division with tag champions that mm -hmm. toured Japan, uh, things went wrong. WCW as well. Yeah, yeah. We we saw like legitimate, solid wrestling good women's women. wrestling. Yep. And it kind of went away, and a lot of that was political. A lot of that was backstage bullshit. It had nothing to do with what the audience wanted. It had everything to do with what the shitty dudes in charge thought people wanted. Well, and it was yeah, sign of the times too. I mean. You know, late late '90s, the epitome of hot is your your big boobs, blonde playgirl, playboy girl, and so let's take that to wrestling. And you saw a resurgence of skilled wrestlers. Um, granted, she wasn't the most skilled wrestler, but 
China was not a sex object. Right, exactly. Lita was a legitimate wrestler. And unfortunately, in the generation after that, it fell apart into not good wrestling. (laughs) But it wasn't like they had a chance. If you watched WWE seven, eight years ago, there was one women's match per Raw, one women's match per SmackDown. Meanwhile, they had 10 women on the roster sitting on their butts. Well, and if you wanted that time, you had to do whatever they were booking you to do. Yeah, and it was primarily fighting over a man. I mean, God damn it, how embarrassing was AJ Lee's storyline with John Cena? I cringe just thinking about that. You would have these very talented athletes that were put in a position to they weren't passing the Bechdel test whatsoever. We'll just say it that way. Yep. And now it has evolved where women's wrestling is wrestling. It's yes. not sexy. It can be sexy. All wrestling is sexy. It's it's legitimate. It's it's an actual wrestling match versus a bra and panties match. Yeah. Or, yeah. You can watch two women have a cage match. You can watch mm-hmm. two women have a hardcore match. You can have two women have a hard-hitting, brutal match. You can have tactical wrestling high-flying lucha libre and the only distinguishing element is their women right and i think that's awesome uh clearly as the promoter of respect women's <laughs> wrestling check out our matches on youtube see plenty of heidi howitzer putting myself over you can see where it's Woof. where it's come from where it is now and where it's going yeah the ugly truth is the sexualization of women's wrestling has always been a thing that is needed to be safeguarded against and fought against and it any opportunity that there was for the business to give women's wrestling the backslide and put it in that position, the only way that it was able to withstand that level of internal sort of getting shit on from the inside and getting actively worked against was outstanding draws and outstanding individual yeah. talents like like Burke. You know, Mildred Burke was, was truly um, trendsetting, right? Yeah, she trailblazing. Yep. And she set the stage for everything that's happened up until now, where we see that women are just as tough, just as good, just as talented, just as much of a draw as any male wrestler, if not more so. And the thing that holds them back is the shitty dudes who hold the keys to the kingdom, the promoters, the bookers, so on, so forth, as we will see in this story as it unfolds. Burke, like any top star, put a lot of time and effort into her appearance. Like we just discussed about her physical fitness routine, she was not overly muscled, but she was defined, she was cut, and she was strong. She ran every day to ensure the cardio to outlast anyone, and she put thousands of dollars in 1930s and 1940s money into her sequined cape and costume and chose saber dance from the Armenian ballet Guyana. So she understood the show business part of things, the appearance, the cosmetic aspect of wrestling, as instinctively as she understood the sport of it herself. Yeah. Did you, did you just tell me that she had entrance music? Hell yeah. Yeah. She. How many years is this before the Freebirds credited with the, with the modern phenomenon of uh, entrance music and pro wrestling? Shit, like forty years. Yeah. Forty. Yeah. Why are we not learning that, man? This is amazing. And what taste? What style and taste? And, and it's because, like we just uh, talked about earlier, because there was no marketability in connecting Mildred Burke to WWE and what they're doing today or what NWA is doing today. Mm -hmm. 
there's no way to say this was us. There's no way to take credit for it or what she was doing. Therefore, you just kind of leapfrog over her and go right to Mula. Yeah, it, it's essentially the way that the, they retroactively change the timeline. It, imagine Hulk Hogan never having that match with Andre. To a lot of WWF, WWE fans, that's sort of the start of the modern timeline, right? Mildred Burke was essentially the Andre to every woman that came after and everything that is known in the modern era. She was the absolute workhorse that created that opportunity to be. Mm-hmm. And in the spring of 1940, New Jersey legalized women's wrestling at last, and Billy Wolf immediately pounced on the situation to secure bookings for Burke with promoter Rudy Dusick. This led to drama because the previously mentioned Jack Pfeffer was also running in Jersey and wanted Burke for matches in Atlantic City. In the end, Wolf manipulated the situation to his advantage, as he always did, and got Burke dates in both regions with both promoters. But it was Pfeffer who would have the bigger impact on her career, embracing women's wrestling as the draw it could be. He jokingly told his male wrestlers in an interview, hit the road, you bums. We got glamour girls now. <laughs> and they packed the Meadowbrook Bowl and boxing arena in Newark. The audience was starting to skew towards the female demographic at this point, and the venue was sold out. The crowd gasped at the actual wrestling ability of the women instead of the hair-pulling shit show that most assumed was going to happen. The crowd went bananas when Burke landed a dropkick. The match drew media from New York City where women's wrestling was still banned, but Burke and Gilla made every paper in the city. The following week, Burke took on Mexico's Lupe Acosta in front of another huge crowd. To further stoke publicity and box office, Pfeffer had the male wrestlers form a union, Wrestlers Association 1234, and pick it outside the Burke matches against the unfair invasion by women. <laughs> One thing we are going to eventually cover, I am sure, is... Jack Pfeffer. You want to talk about uh, exposing the, the, the one of the most hated men in the history of professional wrestling for exposing the business, for stealing gimmicks, right? It, who He booked like uh, Dude Bro San Martino and, and Leandre the Giants and like all the made up like copycat guys. He was he was not afraid to uh, black market or uh, black threaten to blackmail a promoter to get the girls in there. And I get that that's, hey, the business is a dirty game, but Jack Pfeffer and, and, and Billy Wolf, these are two of the most wretched human beings associated with pro wrestling promoters. And that's really saying something, man. I, uh, I really want at some point for a respect wrestling show to have male picketers outside protesting against the wrongful invasion of uh, what is wrestling. One thing I, I, I honestly have wanted to do, but just never pulled the trigger on, is I wanted to do kind of a parody of the way that female valets in the 90s were so overly sexualized. Yes. And give you a, like give one of the women a, uh, like a male uh, valet yes. that would just be sexually humiliated. Can we have nonstop. ring boys? Yeah, something like that. Just something to just kind of flip the script and see how it lands. Um, I like it. But the the crowd loved this, uh, this union angle. Male pachyderm stage protest parade, the Star Ledger headline read. The men carried signs reading, women wrestlers go home and wash your dishes, and complained <laughs> that they couldn't compete against the pretty ladies for the fans. In 1940, Burke was the toast of the town in New Jersey and New York. She couldn't wrestle in New York City, but she was given the star treatment by all the top clubs and restaurants. 
The press was smitten with her. The Washington Post published a photo of Jack Dempsey feeling her impressive bicep, and Ripley's Believe It or Not featured her in a cartoon that was seen nationwide. But behind the scenes, Wolf was less abusive because money was pouring in, but was in no way faithful. He had affairs with Mae Weston, and now Gladys Gillum. He seemed to treat sex as an initiation fee to the world of wrestling. Her son Joe was left with relatives so he could go to school, but she visited, wrote, and called whenever she could and sent him a dollar every month, which was a lot of money back then. Promoters coast to coast were getting letters from Wolf on custom stationery, which featured a seven inch image of Burke with the words, a great athlete and one of the finest attractions in the wrestling world printed on them. And those words held true as she packed arenas, theaters, the occasional hotel rooftop, Branded, many promoters still didn't like women wrestling and booked her begrudgingly to make a profit. And I feel like that's a great place to leave off. We're, this is a big story with a lot more to tell. So this is now gonna be a two-parter. What a fucking journey we've had already, right? What a fucking journey. So we're gonna call it quits for now. We're gonna be back next time with part two of the story of Mildred Burke. It only gets crazier from here, and I can't wait to talk about it with you. Make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, interact, make comments, let us know what you think of what we're doing. Give us a review, hopefully it's five stars. I'll kill you if it isn't. Just kidding, not making a threat on a podcast. For Chago Bronson and Heidi Howitzer, I'm Nick Gossard. Good night. Billy Wolf is a dick. (laughs) 